Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Change is always a constant throughout life. We know that to be true. You can't avoid it, but you need to embrace it. That's really important. As we've learned during COVID, days have become weeks, weeks have become months, months have become year. Well, today's guest has been a champion of transformational, uh, transformational leadership and challenging the status quo whenever possible. He was the youngest executive ever at GM. He's gone on to a stellar career. And of course, Keith Crock is the former undersecretary of state for economic growth energy and the environment. I remember when he called me to tell me he was about to take that. And of course, we couldn't talk about it. But we talked about some of the things as he was transitioning out of his last role as chairman of DocuSign. Because before delving into public policy, Keith's leadership transformed DocuSign into a verb into a verb, into a, into a real noun, uh, into an industry leader in, in digital transactional management. And he was at Ariba before that and reached $40 billion in market capitalization. He's, the, he's one of the few people I've known who has taken a company into billions of dollars, exited, and then did it again. He did this during his uh, chairman and tenure as chairman and CEO at Ariba as well, in addition to doing that at uh, DocuSign. Keith, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Well, Jeff, thanks so much. It's great to be here. Uh, it's good to see you again, and I hope all is going well. I appreciate you having me on your show. Yeah, well, you just recently stepped away from that job. What was that like? I'll tell you, it was one of the greatest experiences uh, I've ever had. Obviously, it was an honor to uh, serve the country. There's no question about it. And pay back uh, to the country that's done so much for my family and me. Uh, and my mission was, it was a big one. Um, my charge was to develop and operationalize a global economic security strategy to drive economic growth, combat economic aggression and maximize national security, you know, and as well as advance peace and prosperity around the world. Well, let's talk about leadership. It's a topic I know that you're very passionate about, and you've been described as a transformational leader. What does that mean, and can anyone become one? Um, it, yes, anyone can become one. And, you know, I guess if you look at the uh, how I would consider the definition of a transformational leader, it would be a leader who uh, challenges the status quo and inspires mobilizes, energizes, and unifies a high-performance team to achieve a noble goal that will leave a profound and long-lasting impact. And I think as long as you have a noble cause in your heart, anybody can be a transformational leader. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, I've known you for a little over a decade now, and I don't think I've ever seen you down. You know, I've seen you frustrated once or twice because things weren't going as fast as they should be. But a lot of people during the last year, especially, many people are, have trouble finding inspiration or even staying motivated. How would you incur, encourage, Keith, someone that's currently struggling and empower them to be better leaders? Yeah, you know, I, I think so much of it is uh, a mindset. And I really think it's about finding your, you know, finding your passion and, and, and focusing on, on goals. And also to look back in life, uh, we have so much to be grateful for. 
particularly in this country. You know, if there's anything that I learned, uh, my time out in Washington is is the value of freedom and the value of democracy. And, you know, democracy is an experiment in the United States. You know, it's it's, you know, 200 and some years old. And it goes against all the laws of physics. The, you know, the natural state of things, the bad king, the dictator and the emperor. And you got to fight every day for that. Um, and so to be thankful uh, that we can live in, a, in, in such a great country and uh, and, be, you know, this is a time where you think about your family and your friends, uh, your faith and, and, and all of that. Yeah, it's a big part of it. I know you've, you've always been someone who's challenged the status quo, yet we're kind of always taught to play by the rules have, you know, let me ask you a question about this. How, how far do you push? Have you ever pushed too hard? <laughs> I've probably pushed too hard a few times, you know, and it's one of the things that uh, we always talk about in terms of our playbook and our team rules, you know, the team rules is all, uh, you know, third team rules to always raise the standard of performance in everything that you do, but also, to maintain your integrity. So, you know, in the business world, we, we would, we do a whole bunch of prototypes. We do experiments in the field. Uh, we would go, we would go over the edge, but when it comes to things like uh, how you treat people, your integrity, how you run your financial books, don't even go up to the edge. Uh, so I think it depends on, on what, and I think, um, you know, in terms of building companies at a hyper growth, there's been times, I've burned people out and I would call that going over the edge. I burned myself out. Um, but you never know where that is, uh, you know, until you get up there uh, close to it. But I think there's important, it's really important that there's things that you don't even approach that edge on. Yeah. You know, but you always work from a framework. I, I know you're, you're standing in your office right now. And I've been in that, by the way, for those that are, are watching and listening, uh, when I say his office is on the top of a hill in the middle of San Francisco that used to be the former Russian embassy. So there would probably be people listening right now uh, to this conversation in different ways. Well, we right? got all the bugs out. And I told you, Jeff, you know, <laughs> if you have a glass of wine here and you start glowing, it's not because the Russians assembled a dirty nuclear bomb in the 80s. That that, <laughs> that rumor's not true. <laughs> <laughs> but on, I know on the back wall of your office is a frame napkin a sheet of paper, a napkin. I can't remember which one which it was. Yeah. Where you outlined a Reba, which was really, truly also became like an outline for DocuSign in terms of the way in which you approach thing. Have you always been like that meticulous in terms of like, you drew it? Was it a napkin or a sheet of paper? Yeah. yeah. You know, I could probably show you if it's, I could move great. my camera around. You yeah. want to see it? Yeah, sure. I think. Yeah. yeah let me see if I can shine a light on it. Yeah. So. Can you see that? There it is, right there. Yeah, yeah, we can see it. Yeah. So that that's the original architecture drawing of the Ariba network that now has does seven trillion dollars worth of transactions uh, per year on the Ariba networks, more than all the trade in the Western Hemisphere. And it was a drawing I did of uh, the architecture. This is a paper tablecloth with crayons where I had the other uh, seven founders, and that was kind of the formula that the way, uh, they all that we, we follow. Didn't they all sign it as well? I think the signatures are all. Yeah, they all signed it. Yeah. They they signed it. I think it was on my 40th birthday. It, 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 it's it's kind of a little faded. It's been a while. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, and that formula was the same formula 
that we followed uh, with regard to uh, to building the the DocuSign Global Trust Network, and 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 the very same formula that we used at the State Department in terms of the clean network, which which defeated uh, Huawei. Yeah. By by the way, congrats on that. I sent you a personal text when I saw that got a all signed and approved. I thought that was a was a class act. And it was a great thing for the U.S. government to be able to do and really to set forth the, the openness of which people should be able to operate. It was awesome. Yeah, so. I mean, it, it was really it was such an important issue. And it looked like Huawei was unstoppable about a year ago. And that's when we formed the Clean Network, which is an alliance of uh, democracies uh, and companies uh, that operate under democratic values. So it's really a coalition that was. That was the key. And it follows so many of the uh, same principles of the DocuSign Global Trust Network, as well as the Ariba Network. And I, I brought 12 uh, results-oriented executives, most of them from Silicon Valley, out to the State Department with me. Um, and, that, and it was really, it, I mean, it was a big deal because Huawei is the Chinese Communist Party's most important company. It's the only company in China with a worldwide brand. And it is the backbone for their surveillance state that commits all the human rights abuses in Xinjiang, where they commit, uh, they're committing genocide right now with the Uyghurs and the other Muslim groups. Um, so it, it was really, really critical. And the core technology in all 5G as well across the world. I mean, they've got a lot of different pieces that are components of that. You know, you've let a number of companies, including DocuSign, which we mentioned, become Real leaders. I mean, Ariba was one of those. DocuSign, you've been on board of other other companies. When I first met you, it was about me going on a board of a company that you were already on the board of. And, and then within a week of me getting on the board, we sold the company. But nonetheless, we'll go on from there. Right. So I, I must add something really quick. A lot to do with that, but it was it was a nice cash out for a week's worth of work. But how do you go about assessing the, pro the, the problems that exist? Because in essence, what we're all trying to do is solve a problem, you know, and that's what we look at. And, and how do you do that and push towards excellence? What's the process like? What do you go through when you start looking at that? Well, you know, I kind of go back to the scientific method that they teach you, you know, in junior high. And it's kind of a seven step thing. I mean, the first the first thing is you got to define the problem and frame the problem. And that is one of the most important things. And so, for example, when you're on the board of, of directors of a company, the most important thing that you can do is frame the issues and frame the problems. So that's step one. Step two is collect the data. I'm a big believer in data-driven uh, you know, solutions. The third one is do an analysis of that data. Look for, um, you know, kind of triangulate it, try, try to find um, uh, some conclusions. And that's your third one is conclusions. Then what are your different options based upon that? Then make a recommended option and, uh, and then a plan of action. And I always think thinking is no good unless action results. So the execution side of the equation, I think is really important. And, you know, being a CEO and stuff like that, um, you know, if somebody would bring me a problem, it's like, hey, bring me a solution with it, right? You expect that. Now, every now and then, um, uh, you know, a problem arrives on your desk that there's no answer for. And the mere fact that it arrived on your desk and you have a, a great team working for you, um, it just means that there's only a probability of success in the solution. 
So when that happens, what do you do? When you get one of those on your desk, and, and I, I've kind of followed a three-step method on that. The first one is I assemble uh, the best experts I can find uh, on that. Get them around the table. The second thing is to make sure that it's different temperaments, talents, and convictions. So they have diversity of thought in terms of functional expertise or where they're coming from and all that. And then the third uh, step is to suppress the egos and have them focus on a problem. And, and then you listen and then you've got to pick one of those. And that, so that when you go to bed at night, you can sleep and say, you know, I, I had the best brains and they focused on it and it was diverse and there's only a probability of success. So, um, you know, you can't dwell on it. C-Suite Radio. You know, one of the things I'm always impressed by you, Keith, is the talent and the team that you attract. Because you, you've all, you know, like at DocuSign, I got to see it real firsthand of it. Because I was there with you at the beginning at DocuSign when there was like literally less than 70 people. Right. And right. yeah, you know, and everybody was doing every job there was and, and making it happen. But yet you brought on this, this great group of people and then continually, I, I would say that you use the word traded up, continually brought in more and bigger, you know, more experienced executives as as it went through. And it just was, it was like, it was a beautiful game plan. How, how do you find great talent like that? Well, you know, as a, as a CEO, your most, the, you know, the most important responsibility is building a high performance team. And, the, and I believe the company with the best team wins. So you really, you know, that's a key part of your role. And you know, one it's interesting that that was your observation because every quarter, I would look around my executive team, and I would say, "Can I upgrade one of these roles?" And not, not. And by the way, and the key is to keep the that that executive. Yeah, keep the same right. you've already invested in because yep. yeah, it's not so much. Hey, do I want to bench you? No, I'm going to have you play a different role. But right. can you step up to the next level? And uh, the, if you're a divisional player, can you step up to Division One from Division Two, or can you go pro? You know. By the way, it's exactly it, and I think it's probably one of the most important uh, skill sets of being able to um, innovate at scale and handle hyper growth. And that is to be able to constantly upgrade your team and to keep the existing players. Um, and you've got to make a lot of tough decisions along the way. Sometimes uh, people don't like it, uh, but you know, if you're coming from a, a great place and you've built uh, you know, camaraderie in that team, then you can accomplish that. And I always say, you know, there's there, there's three big things in terms of uh, uh, getting that team, uh, building that high performance team, and, and you need three things. The first one is a noble mission, right? This is what we're after. Um, and it's going to mean a lot if we accomplish it. The second is you need an enemy. You know, if you don't have one, make it up. That stops the water cooler talk. Let's go get them, you know? The only thing that's funner than winning a deal is, you know, ripping the esophagus out of your competition, to be honest with you. I mean, I never said that, but maybe some people have. Somebody might, yeah. <laughs> and then the third thing you need is you need a plan. 
And that's where the playbook comes in. And the playbook has been a framework that I've used with every company I've built. I use it at Purdue. I use it at the State Department. And that's your vision, your mission, your values, your team rules, your long-term goals, your strategy all boiled down to execution. Yeah. You know, early on, you were up against a pretty big foe, meaning Adobe, Echo, you know, Echo Sign. Remember Echo? And it seems like an afterthought now. But were you ever worried about that at the beginning? I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it was funny because uh, the first thing I wanted to do uh, when I came on board at DocuSign was to buy EchoSign. It was an independent company. And, and so, you know, uh, it, it was a good strategy. And then Adobe bought them. And, and I'm like, oh, oh man. And, and then everybody in the company uh uh, we go, well, how are we going to compete with Adobe? And I go three ways. We're going to outfocus them. We're going to outthink them and we're going to execute them. And by the way, that's exactly what we did. I mean, to the point where I, I had, uh, uh, Sean, uh, uh, Sean, uh, Ryan or it. And, and, and he goes, croc, he, he, I, he was right here in my, you know, right in the office that you love. He, he goes, Croc, it was our God-given right to own, you know, electronic signature. I mean, we invented electronic. Well, they, had, they had every opportunity to do it. I mean, the very predatory company, quite frankly, if you want to say it, a very aggressive company. And, you know, I was in those early discussions. We were sitting in your office and I, they were the biggest threat. They could have literally crushed, I think, DocuSign. But you did those three things and they never stood a chance. Yeah, we, we actually crushed their business, right? And so much of it was uh, the the focus and also speed of execution. They were also in the throes of uh, going to a SaaS model, and, and that's what I, I you know, I, I, I told them. I, uh, I told Shotnu. I said, "Look, you guys were focused on that, and 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 we were focused on." Uh, becoming the global standard for digital signature and expand it out from that. So anyway, I had, well, by the way, that's how you, for a lot of people who don't know behind the scenes, we should tell this story, but that's when you move to this doc, doc, uh, uh, the document management uh, strategy rather than just being an e-signature company. Yeah. So that's right. we painted them, we painted them in the corner as an e-signature company at that time. Yeah. And uh, you know, we expanded the category obviously, which we've done, uh, several times. We also uh, created the XTTM standard. We also uh, built out the DocuSign global network. So it was all these core strategies coming into play, a, a very sophisticated, integrated strategy. Um, and, you know, it just took off. Yeah. Do you, you think you made it when DocuSign became a verb? Ah, you never know. You never totally say, hey, we totally made it because you always want to go to a, a newer height. Although you do get a feeling when you achieve escape velocity, when people start using it, you know, as a verb, um, you know, it, it's it's like, yeah, well, what does, you know, I remember I got asked by uh, on a James Gordon show. He goes, is DocuSign a, a noun or a verb? And I go, James, it's whatever you feel in your heart. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if it's an adverb, adjective. I missed that day in school. Um, but, you know, just DocuSign. And, and you know, what's interesting is that was a premeditated goal because, um, you know, one of the things that uh, we looked at in terms of DocuSign is that name itself was kind of limiting. 
Um, you know, with Ariba, it, it could mean anything, right? And, and that meant elation up and to the right and all that. And so um, we had a point early on where we said, should we change the name? Because, you know, uh, uh, it could be limiting. And we, we came to the conclusion that it just had too much of a brand. So that's when we said, let's create the category digital transaction management. And let's, let, let's, get, let's see if we can get DocuSign to become a verb. Like FedEx it, Google it, you know, just DocuSign it, right? And so we were able to make that happen. I think that was, uh, I think that was pretty big. When you, when you sit down with Tom, Tom was the founder of the company and you saw you know, you were an investor, wasn't, you know, w- w- was not a, an officer or founder of the company, but you stepped in that role. What did you see? I mean, I remember when I saw DocuSign at a sales sales conference that was run by uh, uh, Gestetner and Gerhard Gestetner. I, I saw that booth at that show and I called my son and said, find out about this company. This is going to be big. And, yeah. and I saw the value of it right there. And, and that's how we, I, I remember calling you guys to start yeah. talking to you about, Hey, what are you doing? How are you doing your marketing? What are you, you know, what's going on with it? What, what did you see? Yeah. And then what made you say, Hey, I'm putting money in this thing and I want to go. Yeah. So Tom Gonser came to see me over at benchmark and I, 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 you know, I had no desire to go back and be a CEO at that point. And, um, but I looked at it and, and probably there was, I don't know, you know, I back uh, then probably 20 people in the company. Um, and, and then I ended up joining as the chairman of the board. And then later, you know, a year later as the CEO, but, um, I looked at that and I said, you know what, I bet most people think this is going to be a feature of Adobe. You know what? I know exactly what to do, uh, the, the play to run. And, and it was very similar, uh, to the Ariba play where we could create a category, we could brand it, we could create a network. Uh, we could build a big advisory board. We could get um, the most powerful high tech companies in the world to invest in it. Um, we could isolate the competition and step on uh, their air hose by giving signing away for free. There are a number of things that we did um, to to build the category king, right? And I always look at it. There's three dials. You know, the first dial is growth. Revenue growth. The second one is cash flow. The third one is market power. And um, you know, you learn this stuff's not written in a book. And I learned a lot about market power, and that was the dial we really cranked on pretty hard uh, early on. And that's why you know it's sitting by itself. As well, you, you had that, you had that with real estate, and then you, of course, took that into other transformational verticals. And yeah, we, and yeah, and it was we we did a five dimensional segmentation you know we did the horizontal we did the verticals we did horizontals like different departments then we did it by sizes of companies then we did it by regions and then we did it you know by partners because we sold a lot with partners and so we sequentially you know to me strategy equals sequencing and so we just went from one to the other the first beachhead of course was residential real estate and i always say you know that's the way you, you got to start a company and a definition of a beachhead is small enough that you can own it, big enough you can live off it. Ideally, it's defensible. And also, ideally, it's a strategic high ground to attack adjacent markets. And that's exactly what we did. Yeah, as you went vertical by vertical. Folks who are listening right now and watching, uh, that playbook that you just mentioned in terms of own the category, build it, build it, do these, these different steps. 
That's it right now. That's the game. That's the big game right now. We're all playing. Hey, I know that philanthropy is near and dear to your heart, but you do more than just give to charities. You transform them. How do you do that, Keith? Well, I think it's, you just apply the same universal principles. Um, You know, I mean, the way I always look at it is why join an organization if you're just going to be a maintenance manager, right? Uh, Anybody can do that. And all those same principles apply. So how do you take it to to that next level so you can have a bigger impact? Because at the end of the day, isn't that really why you, uh, particularly in the social sector and philanthropy, you want to make it, you want to make an impact. So what are, what are, what are the forces that you can bring to bear, uh, whether it's resources, whether it's gravitas, whether it's a new kind of thinking, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, a whole team, what can you do to make that impact a big one? And, uh, and so, you know, that's always just held a special place in my heart. You ever did, what do you do for fun? What do you well, do I've got five glorious kids who are just the apples of my eyes. You know, I got eight-year-old twins, and then I've got a set of older kids in their 20s and 30s who are hysterical. Actually, the twins are hysterical. I've got a, an incredible wife who says yes to life. So, I mean, that's what I, you know, my family and my friends. I'm a people collector. I mean, you know that. I mean, yeah. Uh, some people collect coins and stamps and postcards. Uh, I collect people. And and uh, I think for me, uh, I'm a real student of human nature. And uh, so I, I really, I love that aspect of it. What's, ne- what's next? What's next on the horizon for you? Boy, I don't know. Uh, when, when, you, when are you running for the United States Senate? <laughs> no, seriously, I've, I've said this to you a million times. When are you going to run for this? Well, hey, I, you know what? Uh, I'm just coming uh, uh, back from Washington. As I said, it was a great experience. And, and to have the China remit, which was a total bipartisan remit. I mean, the whole China challenge is the biggest unifying bipartisan issue um, in Washington. Um, if, it's not sen- if it's not the Senate, maybe governor. I, I think there could be some good changes out there. Come Man, on. I, I, I can announce it here. No, no one politics. will say a word. <laughs> it, you know, I, I just want to, you know, I, I really, I really enjoyed serving my country. I think it's, it was definitely the most interesting thing I've ever done in my life. Um, the most, you know, fulfilling. And, and one of the guys I brought, you know, Mark Carlson, we've oh. built like seven companies together. You know, we went Great to school Purdue together. We were at GM together. And, um, you know, one of the things that he said as we were walking back from the State Department uh, one night uh, uh, to my place, he said, you know, if you add up Ariba, DocuSign, Raza, all these companies that we've done uh, and put them all together in terms of, you know, what that impact was on the world, it's minuscule compared to what we're doing here at the State Department, right? I mean, uh, you know, one of the big remits, um, uh, as undersecretary of state was during COVID because I, I had responsibility for infectious diseases overseas. And we put, you know, Hero, my former chief of staff over at FEMA, he was, he brought over billions and billions of uh, PPE. Uh, we were also responsible for repatriating 100,000 United States citizens when COVID hit 
you know, I'm, I'm talking to the CEO of FedEx and, and, and uh, UPS for the PPE. I'm talking to United Airlines, American Airlines, Delta Airlines, because at that time they weren't flying. So people wanted to come home and uh, we were able to pull that off. It's the biggest uh, repa- repatriation of American citizens in the history um, and, and things like that. Um, and, uh, that's a tough act to follow, I think. But, um, but anyway, uh, you know, I think, I, I think my, my ultimate legacy will be more than anything else, not the companies I built or things like that, but I think it will be the people that I've mentored along the way. And, um, I think that is, uh, that's the ultimate, uh, of the legacy and, you know, my dad always used to say, you never know if you're a good father until you see your children's children. And, you know, you don't know if you're a good mentor until you see your mentee's mentee. Um, and that's a big passion of mine. As you know, we built the, the Global Mentor Network, which has been tremendously successful with Jay Fiore and, and Tweebu uh, running it. Um, so uh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, appreciate it. Thank you so much, Keith, for being a part of the show today. I know there's going to be some great questions from our audience. So we want to turn it back over to Tricia and to Greg Greenberg, our host, and uh, let them lead it from here. But it's a pleasure to see you, my friend. Can't wait to to tip up a nice glass of uh, California wine with you again soon. By the way, I, I love that, man. C-Suite Radio. Keith, it's just absolutely fantastic to host you here. I have been just absolutely gushing about getting to have this time with you. You mentioned Hero. You mentioned your legacy being in the people that you train and that you mentored along the way and that you've developed, you know, friendships and great businesses with for decades. And I would just love for you to share a little bit more about that, because when I first met you, it was, you know, meeting you, but coordinating through Hero, which is a whole other way to meet any leader. And it was tremendous. And I think everything you do is so in alignment with everything we stand for in C-Suite. Would you share a little bit more about how you practically live that through your team's yeah, you know, and I think, um, especially if you're talking about mentoring people in their like 20s and 30s, uh, and by the way, it's like everybody always underestimates uh, the capabilities of people like in their 20s and 30s. You know, I always have a special place because, uh, I mean, they made me a vice president of General Motors at age 27, and I'm like, oh, man, uh, why did they, how could they do that? Uh, but um and and the other thing about mentoring somebody, this is the thing I told Hero, and I call him Hero, my hero. You know, it's spelled H-I-R-O. And and I said, Hero, I learned, you know, the thing about when you mentor somebody, I think you learn more from the mentee. You know, I think that I think the mentor learns more from the mentee than, than the mentee learns from the mentor. And and it's a great two-way dialogue. And and you know, the best mentors I've had and what I try to do. And what mentees really want to hear is about your fears, your failures, and your flaws. Because if you're out there precedent with aspirations of being a transformational leader or trying to take your transformational leadership to the next level, 
then by that mere fact, you're challenging the status quo. You're, 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 you're having what I call, you know, scary fun. You're jumping in water over your head. And, and it really helps to hear say, man, I remember when I was in that situation, I was terrified, right? That helps you out. And, you know, the other big thing too is when bad stuff happens to you and it will, and I think the name of the game is when the world hands you a sour sack of lemons, the object of the game is to turn it into the sweetest lemonade you can. And so to encourage a mentee to do that. And by the way, if I've had a hero encourage me, right, uh, when some of those things would happen. So uh, and, and hero came, uh, you know, he came out to the State Department with us. Now he's back in the private sector doing great. And, uh, you know, uh, and he's mentoring folks on us. He actually, he, he mentored my, um, uh, my middle son, who's probably about, uh, uh, seven years younger than him. And there's no better mentor, I think, than hero. Incredible. He's my hero. All right. I have a question from Mark Boundy, one of our members. He writes in 2013 and 2014, McKinsey found that more than 75% of directors on the board couldn't articulate the value their company provides to its customers. Have you found that in the boards you're on and how do you either prevent it, solve it, or work around it? Well, I'll tell you what, if you have members on your board who, who can't articulate your value proposition, best, best to train them, and by the way, and best to test them, and by the way, best to put them on the spot have a have a have a private board session where you say we're going to take turns and we're going to have a contest who can articulate the value proposition the best or maybe we're going to video you you could send in a video i mean put the pressure on them why not you're the ceo um so uh because the value proposition is so key because if you want to if you want to at the end of the day what ultimately makes you the category king uh, and you want to, and the category king gets 80% of the uh, industry resources and 80% of the market cap. So what ultimately makes it's when your customers sing your value proposition. Matter of fact, if they can quantify it so much, the better. So if your board can't do that now, if, if, if they refuse to do that or they don't do a good job of do that, then best to get them off your board. Next question. That leads to a great next question. So Steve Lashansky is another one of our faculty leaders in C-suite and uh, tremendous leadership expertise. Um, he says, what are the best ways to upgrade your leadership team um, that you already have in place? Because, you know, we often get stuck in that. When do we, you know, cut the ties, right? When, it, when, it, when do we make that choice? But then how do we invest to up-level them? Yeah, well, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Always be always be recruiting. Always be looking for talent. And what I would do is is uh, I would pick one uh, major impact upgrade every quarter that I would try to try to make. And I would look around at the executive team and say, where do we need to upgrade? Or also, where do we need to add a new executive? And by the way, if 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 your whole leadership team looks hey, these guys are solid, great, they can scale to the next level, then go one level down and try to find an impact player or, you know, a, a top chief technology officer or something like that. So um, I think that's really, really critical. And uh, especially when you're growing, 
and, and organizational design is is so important. And it's involved and involve your team in it, right? Uh, you know, the people support what they help create is is leadership 101. And so when you bring these guys in, you know, uh, make sure your whole you know leadership team meets them, interviews in formal setting. You know, ideally, it's 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 folks that you've come to get to know uh, over months or years or something like that. Clarence Snayers wants to know how important is empathy and compassion in transformational leadership. Clarence, it's so important. Um, if you don't have uh, whether it's customer empathy or employee empathy or compassion, why would anybody want to follow you? You would just be an automaton, a machine. You'd be heartless. You'd be cold. At the end of the day, people follow you because they trust you, because you're authentic and because you care. So that is ultra, ultra important. And you know, there's kind of things like positional power, how far are you, or I give you more stock options or something like that. But at the end of the day, people follow you because they trust you, they respect you, and in some cases, they love you. Um, Lynn O'Neill had a couple of great questions. One is, you, you mentioned about, uh, you know, having your mission, identifying the enemy, and then your plan. Uh, so one of her questions was, how do you present that enemy to your team to really have them wrap around it? And then, and then secondly, you had mentioned about diversity of thinking and the expertise areas and so on, really how you think about that diversity and inclusion and getting different voices, getting different uh, mentalities as well as expertise areas into your teams. Okay. So on that, on that last one, on diversity, I really do believe different temperaments, talents, and convictions, and diversity of thought is the catalyst for genius. And it, I mean, I've just seen it over and over and over again. And you want people coming from those different perspectives. It's not only the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do, right? So um, always be always be searching for that. I mean... Uh, you know, people with the different backgrounds, um, just you, you want that. You want to blend it together. I mean, you've all done the group, you know, Arctic survival games. The, the group always beats the individual. So so it's just I mean, it's to me, it's like the simplest thing in the world. Um, and and if you don't have a diverse team, then you better go best go find one. C-Suite Radio. You had to break up teams, uh, Keith, where where they start to get into a group think, a group ment, you know, yeah. group uh, processing, and they're not bringing in extra, you know, external voices or different perspectives, or hearing them. Um, is your question? Have I experienced that before? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think to some extent, and. You know, that's when you, you know, I'm also a big believer in doing the quarterly offsite. That's where you kind of pull them up, pull them apart. And you, you know, you, you keep asking why, why, why? And you got to have that direct, open and honest communication. And sometimes as a leader, you're so much a part of that group that you actually got to bring in a, in a third party, um, you know, facilitators, which I've done from time to time. Uh, and it's, it's always a good thing to do. 
And if you just sense, you know, when you begin to sense that stuff, then there's a problem, man. Uh, it, there is. So don't wait. Don't procrastinate. So anyway, what was the what was the first question you asked? Presenting the common enemy. Oh, presenting the common enemy. That's easy to do. <laughs> I mean, you know, just find you know find your competitor and 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 go right after him. And you know, because uh, people uh, they love to compete. I mean, in the business world, if you don't love to compete, then you might as well go in the social sector and, you know, focus there. I mean, you can compete there, too, of course. But but um, and and I think when you do that uh, symbolism and what you do is really key. So, for example, at DocuSign, we created a knockout program against Adobe. So, you know, it's one thing to win a deal. It's one to knock them out where they are. And what we would do is we would pay our sales guys three X the commission if they had a knockout, because that was ultra bragging rights. And then you'd have a great case study and then you'd get the customer saying, well, this is why, and I'll never forget, I'm interviewing the CEO of NetSuite at our, at our user conference. And he's telling the story about, you know, when Adobe went down, you know, uh, on, you know, uh, I think it was December 31st and he called me up in a panic. I said, Hey, we can solve your problem. Just, just go on the uh, the trial page of DocuSign will get you through your quarter and we'll upgrade you. So, you know, those kind of things, that is worth a ton. Um, but always put it in, I, I like the framework of out-focus them, out-think them, and out-execute them. And by the way, always recruit from your competition. So, Keith, as someone who went from the private sector to government, can you give us a little bit of an idea of the best way for the two to work together? What does one do well, the other do poorly, and vice versa? And also, who's the common enemy when you're working for the government? Well, the Chinese Communist Party is. Um, I can tell you that. Uh, they do a lot of bad things. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's re- it was really a great uh, experience. So, first of all, the principles in business uh, apply to the government. but uh, a, a lot of folks in the government, the career officers who I, who I really have grown to respect, the foreign service officers, the civil service. I mean, these guys are mission driven. Um, they work their tail off. They don't get paid like the private sector. Um, they are inc- incredible people. And I always say, if you see a career foreign service officer or a civil servant, you, you thank them for their service, just like you would a, a military person. But what they don't have the they don't have a lot of the basic skills when it comes to like let's say marketing for example and what i would say uh to my colleagues in the government i would say united states is the worst organization i've ever seen at marketing ever and they have the best product i go so it's a compliment and an insult all in one because you know uh the need to do strategic positioning and and, and a lot of things like that uh, you develop those in the private sector. The, uh, the other, the other kind of uh, skills that are lack is you could use more fresh technical talent. You could use more sales talent in terms of um, closing deals. And I'm talking about, uh, uh, you know, my experience running economic diplomacy for the United States and, you know, the discipline of economic statecraft, which is the tool of choice in, in today's world. Um, 
Now, uh, what can we learn? You know, what can private sector learn from the people in government? I, I, I'll tell you, service. And these guys are, I've never been so prepared in my life. Um, these guys' breadth of knowledge is so, uh, is so wide. And, um, you know, the, the U.S. diplomatic corps, uh, it's the best in the world for a reason. And what I'll tell you, I ran an experiment that was incredibly successful. I brought in 12 folks from the private sector. And what everybody told me is nobody does that. Nobody does that at all. Um, and what I did is I teamed them up with a career person. And it was actually uh, a love affair. It was like one plus one equals three. It was a 60-60 deal. Um, so... Uh, I think that's incredible. And I would say to anybody, any young person, uh, or actually anybody, if you get a chance to get experience working for the United States government, go do it. Because I can tell you, I wish I knew uh, uh, way long ago what I learned in the, in the government sector. I'll give you an example. I took four companies overseas, actually four categories overseas. And when you do that, you know, you go on a listing trip, you have all that. I never once thought of calling the United States State Department or the Commerce Department. I'll tell you what, if, you, if you're taking your product overseas or entering a new country, you call up the State Department. These guys would say, come on, you know, come to our embassy in Japan. We'll introduce you to all these guys. I could have short, uh, uh, shortened a lot of that uh, time and got a lot more credibility. So, um, don't be afraid to call them for help. And I think it's one of the most underutilized assets of our business community. And, and the public private partnership is big. And what I, you know, um, when they asked me uh, during my Senate confirmation hearing, uh, you know, what would be your strategy to, in, in terms of the China challenge? I said, uh, uh, it's a three pronged strategy in our harness. Uh, three years of competitive advantage. The first one is further strengthen our relationship with our allies and our friends. And the second is to leverage the innovation resources of the private sector. You know, of course, the third one was amplify the moral high ground of democratic values. But, um, but it, it, it is, I mean, I don't want to, it's not untapped, but it's, it's the biggest Delta. You can tell I'm passionate about that one. Fantastic. Uh, you know, bringing it back to organizational structure, Sherry Novick had a great question about what you see. And with all the experience that you just shared, you know, Ariva, DocuSign, uh, and, uh, and now with the government, what do you see as the most critical strategical, uh, strategic organizational capabilities for organizations to really be focused on building out right now? In terms of um, uh, companies or... Companies, growth, and success, exactly. Well, you know, I think um, we, we need uh, American businesses to expand uh, abroad um, because uh, the Chinese Communist Party is a real and urgent threat to our democracy and actually a real and urgent threat uh, to business. So I, I brought Secretary Pompeo a year ago out to Silicon Valley. I hosted him for four days. We kicked it off with a dinner at my home. We had 36 of the top CEOs. We had them go around, tell their China story. And some of them were horrifying. And at the end, I said, look, guys, um, you know, it's, it's not just they're a real and urgent threat to uh, our democracy. They're a real and urgent threat to your business because they don't want to just compete. 
they want to put you out of business. And, you know, out here we say corporate responsibility is social responsibility. Corporate responsibility is also national security. Um, and that was something that I learned out there. I mean, this tells you how, um, not, you know, how little I knew. I didn't know that the, the North Star for the federal government is national security, right? So a guy like me can kind of grow up in Ohio with that white picket fence and, and 2.5, you know, kids and a dog and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, anyway, I think that responsibility is more important now than ever. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.